Hey, welcome everybody, and welcome back to another episode of CISO Talk. Mitch Ashley, CTO with TechStrong Group and principal with TechStrong Research, and Jennifer JJ Manila, uh, my co-host with the show. Jennifer JJ, whatever I'm calling you today, welcome. <laughs> it's good to be doing this with you again. How are you doing? I'm great. I think I decided earlier today that I, I'm going to be Diana through uh, Diana through this day. Yes, at least till eight eight o'clock at night. Nothing like mixing it up. Okay. All right, Diana. No, I'm just kidding, JJ. <laughs> hey, we've this this is, you know, every episode is special. This one I think is even a little extra special because of our guest and someone that you've known for a long time. Uh Chuck Kessler. I'll let you introduce Chuck and then he can tell us a little bit more about himself. You want to just start out, JJ, with your connection with Chuck? Yeah. I've known Chuck for I I've I should Think about these before we have the guests on so I can tell you exactly how long we've known each other. But um, I'm going to start now and, and rewind and then Chuck ask you to kind of fill in a little bit here. So right now you're the CISO at Pendo uh, before that. And I think when we met through ISSA, you were um, the CISO at uh, Duke Health System. And then I know before that, we've had some conversations about some of the security work you were doing uh, as a consultant with Symantec and some of the prior things there. So if, do you want to kind of uh, move us back forward through that progression, talk about how you ended up where you are now? Yeah, thanks, JJ. And uh, thanks, Mitch. For, uh, really uh, appreciate the invitation to be here today. Um, hopefully, I can do this podcast justice. Um, I haven't done many of these, so um, I apologize uh, for, you know, I'm going to try to be interesting. I don't know if I can be. We'll see. I'll, I'll do you already best. are. You're good. You're on good <laughs> okay. Great. Um, yeah. So, JJ, yeah, I mean, I don't know exactly how long we've known each other. It's more than 10 years. I'm just going to leave it at that. Um, so, you know, that's uh, that's a reasonable amount of time. Yeah, I joined Pindo about four, four and a half years ago. Uh, prior to Pindo, I was a CISO for Duke University Health System for, I think it was seven years. Um, and prior to that, I spent about six years working with Semantics Advisory Services Consulting Practice. And I go back further than that. I actually started my career more in the, on the technical side as a systems administrator, moving up into IT management and eventually security. So I've got, you know, 30 plus years actually doing things in tech in general. And it's been, uh, you know, an interesting journey. Um, I like to point out oftentimes that I've been around, been connected to the Internet since the mid 80s before most people even had a clue what the Internet was. Um, I think the very first time I connected to the Internet uh, was probably about 1986 um, from a little Unix mini computer sitting in a university office. Um, you know, just connecting with other folks at other universities. So it was a lot of fun back then. But to see it all, you know, see all this technology grow, connect the entire world. And then, you know, security becoming a thing that we had to worry about, you know, in the early days, it's like, you know, people were just playing around. But, you know, this became a very serious thing, obviously, once the rest of the world was connected and, and we started using this technology for taking care of patients. <laughs> for example, when I was at Duke, um, you know, uh, we have... That entire enterprise connected everything from the MRI, MRI machines to the IV pumps to, um, you know, all the things that are helping to diagnose, um, you know, the illnesses that our patients are, are, you know, dealing with. So, you know, obviously security was a huge, uh, huge concern for Duke, which is the reason why they brought me in there. Um, you know, it was an interesting transition going from that industry in healthcare, you know, again, taking care of millions of patients per year. Um, in a highly regulated environment to a very fast growing software as a services company at Pendo. Uh, when I joined Pendo uh, four and a half years ago, again, um, we're about a 250 person company had already grown quite a bit. Um, Pendo 
at that point, I think was right at five years old. Um, so we're hitting our 10 year anniversary this year, but we grew from you know five people to 250 when I joined in that first five years. And now we're close to 900 people now. Um, so, uh, you know, we're considered one of those tech unicorns and it's a very different environment than working at a place like Duke Health, where again, very large organization taking care of a lot of patients, a lot of, you know, regulatory concerns, uh, a lot of traditional IT infrastructure to a fully cloud native company, uh, that was, you know, never has had a rack of servers sitting in a closet or anything like that. Everything we've always done has been sitting in the cloud. And again, a very software development oriented organization, we have to, um, you know, move and adapt with the market very quickly. Uh, we're deploying new versions of our software multiple times per week. You know, something very different again from what I experienced at Duke. So that was definitely an interesting transition to have to, you know, kind of do a mind shift to, you know, from a very slow, you know, a very slow moving organization to one that moves very quickly to adapt and, and uh, take advantage of opportunities in the market. And the word agile comes to mind. Yeah, uh, exactly. Today's kind of a SaaS cloud-based yeah. software company. I would imagine too, and, and this is something that JJ and I talk, frequently talk about the intersection of security, software, and software development. You have the added factor of uh, kind of mobile, right? Your your apps, you know, are about measuring mobile, not to go too much into Pendo. We don't have to do mm-hmm. that. But, you know, you're, you yourself are, are dealing with customers in the mobile world, which introduces, I would imagine, um, some unique uh, considerations, especially given you came up through IT and probably had BYOD and dealt with all those issues. Now you're creating that software coming into those networks. Yeah, you know, so it's interesting. Yeah, so our platform, we started as a, a web-centric uh, platform. Um, so helping our customers instrument their web applications to understand user journeys through those applications. Um, but over time, we realized uh, that, hey, yes, mobile is part of that user journey, user journey as well. So Pendo actually acquired a company that had a, um, a complementary product um, at the time. This was roughly, I think it was 2018 or so. So it was actually before I arrived at Pendo or shortly before. And, uh, you know, since we've actually kind of redeveloped that entire platform, but, you know, essentially it's an SDK that gets embedded into our customers' applications that helps instrument those applications. So, you know, the interesting aspect of that is, you know, you kind of think about web applications and mobile applications and how they're different. Yeah, I mean, with a web application, it is a very dynamic thing. You know, again, we can deploy multiple versions of that in a day. With a uh, a mobile application, on the other hand, it is an app that gets built and deployed into an app store. And so if the customers then you know update from the app store, you know, maybe they update um, as new of new uh, uh, you know, new versions of that application become available. But in many cases, they don't, right? You know, if they turn if a lot of people actually don't turn on auto updates, right? So um, that application might live on their device many, many uh, you know, weeks, months, years without ever actually being updated. So our software is going into those customer applications. Um, so you know, if you think about our, our web application, our agent that goes into a web application, again, we can update that multiple times per week. In the mobile world, we have an SDK that is going to get embedded into that, that uh, customer application. And we don't know when it's going to get updated. <laughs> so, you know, we do have to think about, you know, hey, we while we have a lot of processes to try to prevent security vulnerabilities in our own product, you know, if we do identify one in our agent, we can very quickly correct it because all we have to do is deploy a new version. 
um, with those mobile SDKs, like, yeah, that's a little bit more of a difficult challenge because those, uh, those applications with that embedded SDK can live on a user device for a much longer period of time. So it definitely introduces some different sets of challenges uh, where those updates are a lot more out of your control in the, you know, in the hands of a consumer that may or may not actually care about updating that application. I have a couple questions. Um, sure. Because you you know you did come up from a highly on-prem, um, mm-hmm. heavy on-prem environment with a lot of biomedical devices, and it's not a small health system, so uh, it was a large volume of stuff you were dealing with there. I think we made a joke about uh, uh, a, a wireless or an internet connected a wheelchair at some point, and I think Chuck said, "No, we actually have those." <laughs> <laughs> um, but. I, I'm kind of curious, you know, moving from that to to someplace like Pendo that, that's or any environment that's you know cloud native and you don't have the on-prem infrastructure. As a CISO, what has been your transition? What's changed for you and your process in terms of like how you create or update policies, the the cadence with which that might happen, and maybe who's involved in that? Um, as you've what what all have you seen shift? Uh, or stay the same? Yeah, it's a very interesting question. I mean, I actually think in many ways it simplifies the world for me because um, there are a lot of things that I had to worry about from an infrastructure perspective now that are just taken care of for me. Um, You know, all of our services live out in the cloud. So actually, I don't care where my end users are at. They could be sitting here at the office. They could be sitting at home. They could be sitting in a coffee shop or a hotel. Um, you know, I have to design with the assumption that my, you know, my my developers could be anywhere in the world versus, you know, that more infrastructure centric view of the world where, OK, yes, we're going to assume everybody is on prem and they're working in, you know, in an office or in a, you know, in a um, hospital room or operating room or something of that nature. So, again, just kind of heading down the zero trust world uh, route here a little bit, I guess, with this part of the discussion. But, you know, from an architectural perspective, just to say, look. I'm not going to trust that, you know, this network that the device is connected to just because it comes from this particular network. I'm going to trust any of it. I'm going to base that trust more on the identity, um, the authorization and authentication process uh, of, of the user connecting to the application that sits out in the cloud. And I might look at the device that it's coming from and say, OK, is this a managed device? Um, yes, that's that's part of the equation as well. But uh, again, in that that uh, yeah that more traditional network infrastructure world, it definitely you know we had the part on the outside, soft and chewy on the inside. <laughs> Even though we had done a lot of work in terms of of segmenting that network, um, as JJ, I know you worked on a couple of projects with us, so you know how complicated that network was and how difficult it was to you know add a, a network of that scale to actually manage segmentation in a meaningful way. Um, yeah, versus just again assuming that look, you know, I have applications deployed in a public cloud that are going to be connected to, you know, basically through, you know, through that that internet connection that that the person is connected to. So I'm not I'm not going to trust just because you're coming from a particular IP address. I'm going to trust more on the authentication. You know, again, the MFA obviously for everything. Um, and then uh, in certain cases, again, looking at device trust, is this a managed device that the connection is coming from? So for me, it's made that that zero trust aspect of things was just more of a natural motion for us. I mean, it's kind of how we built the, you know, built the enterprise. And when I look at a company again like Pendo that grew so quickly, 
Uh, we were able to do that because we didn't have to invest heavily in building all this infrastructure up front. Um, you know, again, we were consuming cloud resources as we scaled. Uh, so we didn't have to go get again capital to build you know big network infrastructure, you know, racks of servers and things like that. We were just paying as we as our customer base grew. And we gave everybody a laptop and we gave them a good network to connect to. So, you know, it allowed us again to grow a company much more quickly um, that way. So yeah, I mean, I think that if you're building a new company today, it's sort of a natural motion to to go down that route versus you know the more traditional way of having to build all that infrastructure like you would have in the past. And Chuck, you you mentioned, um, you know, developers could be working from anywhere. You mentioned you know the managed devices and and possibly unmanaged being the other kind of BYOD model. Um, not not talking about you know your your current environment, but just your feelings as a CISO and throughout your history in working with organizations. How do you kind of weigh the pros and cons of BYOD models and whether you're going to let people access things from a personal device and what to what degree and, and what things? Where what's your kind of like <laughs> risk risk assessment for that look like? You know, it really depends on the organization and the mission and the data, et cetera. I don't think there's a one size fits all answer to that. Um, I do think you'd have to you know, have to evaluate it in the con in that context. But ultimately, yes, I mean, I think you you have to look at it from the perspective of if you're going to allow BYOD, um, and there may be some cases where that's perfectly fine, you know, being able to do some sort of posture assessment of the device uh, to say, okay, yes, this, you know, this device is at least patched reasonably well. Um, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, not compromised. It's running, you know, some sort of, you know, antivirus or EDR agent or something of that nature, it meets our minimum security requirements to be connected to this application uh, or to this network. I mean, I think that's that's sort of the, the, the basis for getting comfortable with a BYOD type approach. Um, you know, the reality is that, uh, you know, you can't, I don't think I think it's very difficult for any organization these or most organizations these days, at least to completely rule out things like connecting to email services um, from a like a personal phone. Um, so, you know, there's some things like that that you might be a little bit more open to allowing versus connecting to a production database again from that that personal device. So, again, as part of the risk assessment, looking at the data, you know, looking at what might be appropriate on certain types of devices. But. You know, again, if you're going to do BYOD, um, I, I think uh, you know doing an MDM on a on a BYOD device. I mean, that was actually something that we did at Duke, but it was an opt-in, and if you didn't opt into doing it, we limited you to what applications you could get access to. Hmm. So, yes, we allowed access to email, but we did not allow access to the clinical systems. You know, without having the MDM uh, application or the, the the device enrolled in MDM, so that we could again do that deeper posture assessment. Yeah, that makes sense. I remember doing some work um, for the University of Colorado uh, hospital system, and the security team in working with doctors. Uh, doctors kind of had the ultimate power, right, in the organization. And some didn't like security and didn't want to do things the security way. And in a way, it's not the same, but a bit of an analogy to developers, right? Developers like their own environment. They like control. They want to use the tools they want to use. They don't want your stuff getting in the way. So it seems like both of those may be the same, maybe some unique challenges. Talk about 
that as a user part of your user community people who really you need you need security but they don't necessarily want or maybe even can't force them to do some of those things yeah you know it's an interesting analogy um it's certainly doctors uh and nurses you know people that are taking care of patients you you do want to enable them to do their work in a way that is comfortable for them and allows them to be effective at that because Ultimately, what they're doing is, is uh, you know, saving lives. <laughs> and oftentimes I would try to put my, when I was thinking about uh, a request from, you know, from a healthcare provider for, you know, hey, we want to do this. We want to install this application. We want to use something in a slightly different way. I would try to look at it from the perspective, okay, you know, is this, um, let me think about the, you know, the patient that they're taking care of. What if that patient is me? What if it's a family member? Um, what if it's a friend? Um, like, okay, yeah, you know, if this is going to help them be more effective in delivering care to that patient, you have to weigh, you know, the security concerns against that as well. Um, obviously, we have compliance and you know regulatory issues that we have to deal with. So there's a lot that goes into that mix in a healthcare environment to uh, to making a determination. But you definitely have to listen to the people who are actually using the technology and understanding, you know, look, is this going to affect them in a significantly negative way? Um, that is going to interrupt their workflows or make it more difficult for them to get their work done. I, I think a great analogy I can use for that is when we uh, implemented multi-factor authentication at Duke Health, and we did this fairly you know, early in the, actually in the grand scheme of things, we implemented it back in, I think it was 2015. Um, you know, we thought very heavily about, okay, you know, what does this look like in the clinical environment? Do we, you know, do we want to be in a situation where doctors and nurses are having to pull out you know, a phone to do MFA um, every time they do something on the on the clinical uh, workstation that they're connecting to. Um, no, we probably don't, because even if you know that only takes 15 seconds, you know, that, those 15 seconds can make a difference, uh, a big difference in actually taking care of a patient, particularly in a, in a you know a life critical situation. So, um, you know, we looked at, okay, what, what, uh, you know, in that particular case, we're going to be uh, a little bit less restrictive or uh, a little bit more open to not doing MFA in internal applications when you're connected to the internal network versus, you know, remote access and we're always going to do MFA, right? So those are the sorts of decisions that we, we went through there. Now, you know, flipping that over to um, to the developers. Yeah, I mean, you know, developers are creators. Um in in many ways, the doctors and nurses are creators as well, right? You know, you're doing creative work to some degree. You have, we think, like to think about it as science uh, or engineering, but you know, there's a lot of uh, a, you know a lot of thought that has to go into the next step that you're going to take, and you know, the, the right tool to get you to that next step is not necessarily always a you know the the tool that you currently have. Sometimes it's like okay, there's something new coming that I want to take advantage of. I'll, uh, you know, go ahead and bring in the, uh, you know, the AI part of the conversation now. So, you know, one of the hot things at the moment is uh, using things like GitHub Copilot or ChatGPT to help you write code. So, okay, you know, this can help you, this can, you know, make you a more effective developer, right? And maybe it eventually puts you out of a job. You know, there's that too. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's no denying the fact that it can help uh, help someone create code more quickly. Now, theoretically, you know, you're not just taking that code and tossing it in. Usually, you know, the developer is actually doing some work. But we want to be able to find a way to uh, make it so that they can do those things in a safe manner. So we do want to put some guardrails up and help them understand what are the safe ways to use these, these new tools 
So, um, but we, we, you know, so we want to know about them and we want to be able to have a conversation about them. We don't want them to just kind of run off and, you know, do something without us uh, knowing about it. But one of the, the, the reasons why people run off and uh, do something without um, telling you about it is that you've told them no too many times, right? <laughs> so you want to build relationships with them. Um, and I think that's very key in develop in, in working with the developers uh, anywhere, you know, certainly here at Pendo. They've invested a lot in, in um, building those relationships so they understand, look, we're not here just to tell you no. We're here to uh, help you find a way to get something done. Um, so let's talk about what you're trying to accomplish. Let's talk about the risks that might be associated with that. We'll see if those risks are reasonable for the, you know, the business value that we're going to get out of this. Um, and you know, what we can do to mitigate those risks. So, um, yeah, I've always found that if we, we try to go into the conversations in a constructive fashion versus just, you know, taking these stance up front that we're going to tell, you no, <laughs> we're going to tell, you no, you know, uh, you know, five times until, you know, you go away, but instead say, okay, you know, we hear you, uh, we want to talk about, you know, some risks and some ways that we can, we can do this safely. I usually find that people are a little bit more uh, engaged in, in those conversations at that point, if, you know, don't have that, that history of being the department of know. So Chuck, Mitch and I always like to ask the what's bugging you question. And I, I, I especially think it's funny with you because you're always such a, um, upbeat you always have such an upbeat happy demeanor like i never have heard you complain about anything and i've never heard you really rant on anything so uh i'm i'm interested to let mitch wind you up on developers using ai and, and just see what happens here well yeah I mean, maybe i don't know if that's what's bugging you or you know you have privacy issues just like you you know different but you a lot of them that you had the medical field yeah you're tracking, helping people track customer journeys, talk about privacy information. What kind of things uh, keep you up now? What's bugging you? Yeah, I mean, uh, again, yes, I try to take a, you know, a, a optimistic view of the world. That's just who I am. Um, but, you know, yes, things move very quickly and it is, um, you know, yeah, there's, there's a lot of risk out there. We may not fully understand all the risks sometimes. So I, mean, I think that's, that's an aspect of being a security leader that, you know, you have to find your, your personal comfort level with, you know, hey, there's, you know, always going to be a certain number of things that are just going to be running out ahead of us. And um, it can be very disconcerting at times. And I think, you know, certainly looking at how quickly the world has, you know, kind of grabbed a hold of the generative AI stuff over the last few months. Um, I mean, like everybody, I've personally played around with a little bit and I've seen how powerful it is. So, um, yeah, I mean, uh, on the other hand, I also get how it could be misused and how it could present issues for us if we if we're not, you know, again, building good guardrails around that. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I would be lying if I said I wasn't worried about that. Um, you know, again, I'm trying to uh, approach it from the standpoint of finding a way to enable the business to get value out of that in a way that we're also, um, you know, kind of managing the risks. I have had to tell people some some people to slow down a little bit on some things because we were getting a little bit out you know, ahead of ourselves on that. Um, but you know, again, that's that's my job is to try to navigate those waters. Uh, yeah, the the other one that has certainly been a challenge for us is you know we are working on a uh, FedRAMP program right now, and that is a very complicated piece. Um, and, and certainly, um, I know anybody that's you know done JJ. I know you work with people that are doing CMMC and things of that nature. Wow, and just um, 
you know, to, to, to figure out exactly what the federal government is looking for. Um, it's just, uh, you know, it, it is a, uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> never-ending battle. <laughs> the goalposts seem, seem to be moving a lot on that. So, um, yeah, that's that's definitely something that has been keeping me up at night, uh, making me, um, yeah, you know, you know, pull hair out. I guess fortunately, I still have reasonably uh, full head of hair there. But um, yeah, that's that definitely has been, um, you know, getting me a little worked up here lately. <laughs> oh. Government and and uh, pulling hair out, I think, go in the same sentence quite often. Yeah. <laughs> And it's one of those things where you would think because, yeah, I'm responsible for for CMMC compliance um, with the client. And it's one of those things where you would think with all of the jokes we have about how slow the government moves on things that they wouldn't get halfway into something and then pivot and change it 90 <laughs> degrees and then get another 20 percent the way into it and then completely do, redo the whole thing. And so we're at like basically the third revision of something before there's even an audit committee can certify you against it um but that's that's been the that's been the life we're living recently hasn't been fun um chuck i'm curious when you uh having never managed you know developers or development team when you say that you know one of the, the key points which makes sense to me is you know building relationships there so that you have some trust and you're not always that department of no uh and you can work together for solutions is that something that you do as a formalized strategy or is it just an ad hoc, you know, gut feeling we're going to listen to you and, and open door, come, come talk? Well, I mean, I think it's a little of both. Um, I mean, I think part of it is yes, how you approach the organization and it's not just the developers, by the way, it's also our, our product organization because they're the ones that ultimately set the agenda for our developers um, and determining what we're going to be building um, and so, for example, we may determine or maybe, you know, hey, we just have a dependabot scan run and we've got like all these dependencies that need to be updated. And some of them are easy. Some of them are hard. Um, the hard ones are like, OK, you know, that's going to have to go into the backlog and then we're going to have to negotiate um, around, you know, product features that are being built and ensure that we don't lose track of those things. So it's not just, again, working with the developers, but also with our product managers to understand, look, yes. We're all about building new features in the product, but we have to make sure this tech debt is addressed as well. So, um, yes, part of it is just being accessible, um, you know, being connected, uh, whether it's, well, I'm actually in the office here right now, but, you know, also uh, we're a very Slack-based organization. So lots of lots of conversations happen there. Um I have kind of a love-hate relationship with that because uh, I, I think it's amazing <laughs> how quickly we can connect and discuss something. On the other hand, that can also mean it's very distracting and very hard to get anything done and, and be focused on something. But, uh, you know, generally speaking, just trying to make sure that we are being responsive where we can or, you know, if we're, hey, look, we've just got a lot, you know, even as a security team, you know, we get a question from the product organization or from a developer about something and like we might not be able to get to it right away, but at least trying to set expectations as to when we are going to be able to get back to them. So um, just trying to be responsive, trying to be transparent about what we're working on um, and, you know, sharing both ways, right. You know, that, that we understand um, what their constraints are and they understand what our constraints are. Um, are we always perfect at that? Absolutely not. I mean, plenty of times we could have done, kind of, we could have done a better job communicating or building a particular relationship, but you know, it's just something you have to be intentional about. And again, through a combination of sort of formal structures, you know, I think every organization sort of develops that, you know, that governance model, if you will, um, for, you know, how you're going to, you know, 
perform your business. In this case, our business is building software. And so trying to make sure that we are plugged in at the reasonable places in those processes so that security has a voice there. But at the same time, also building advocates um, so that uh, people recognize, hey, maybe we need to have our security team you know, here for this part of the conversation. Um, we have played around with uh, security champions programs as a way to uh, to do that. And um, we actually, I mean, we had that formalized a little while back. We actually had to put it on pause because we felt like we were not investing the right resources in that. Um, <clears throat> but the general idea there is to find those people that in the organization that have an interest in security and want to help us, you know, uh, in their particular role, um, help be an advocate for security by giving them some additional tools and, you know, uh, information that they can use. So we we had that a little bit formalized in the past, had to pull it a little bit back, but we still informally use that method as well uh, to uh, to ensure that we're, again, you know, just taking advantage of grassroots efforts where we can in the organization. And you, yeah, I'm you curious did. about, I'm sorry, JJ, go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. I, I was just going to throw out there that I saw a stat on the news this morning that said um, post-COVID, 50% of people are returning or are being forced to return in office full-time. And then there was some percentage that was in the 20s, I think high 20s that was working remotely. And then only, it was less, it was like 12% that was hybrid, meaning they go into an office sometimes. And I just thought that was a weird, had you asked me to make up numbers, those are not the numbers I would have, that's that's drastically off from what I would have guessed is going on right now. So I just thought that was interesting. You're in an office, Mitch is actually feigning working from home today. <laughs> <laughs> I'm green screening working from home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. you know, um, yeah, and on that note, I mean, uh, we're very much a hybrid company and um, we do have a very nice office space here. And uh, but people choose to come here. We on an average day, we probably have about 50 percent of our workforce that comes to the office. So it's um, a nice space because they like being here. They like, you know, <laughs> I like to say I come here because I like being around the other people uh, in the organization. But we also it's just a very nice space. You know, it's it's comfortable to be in lots of great um you can't see it from this room, but lots of nice views of downtown Raleigh. Uh, we have a terrace up on the 19th floor. It's open, you know, um, and as JJ knows, we have a pizza oven, all those, those nice amenities uh, here as well. So and a, it, and, um, and the hidden room. And uh, the, the hidden room, that's right, the uh, the speakeasy. So, <laughs> so at any rate, yeah, it's just a nice place to be. And I think, I think that's where companies that, um, this is my, my personal opinion, you know, compelling people or telling people that to be in the office is one thing, but you know, making, making a place where people want to be, that's, that's really where success can come and giving people the flexibility to decide, you know, when is it okay to be uh, at home versus, you know, when, when you need to be in the office. I think flexibility is what a lot of people are really ultimately looking for, including obviously security people, um, you know, that we all appreciate that in our lives. You know, Chuck, it's interesting. Now that you've been, doing kind of working in the software world as a security person. A lot of organizations, a lot of CISO security teams are sort of faced with that DevSecOps, uh, supply chain, software supply chain security, all these kind of software things, um, securing the DevOps platforms and tools and um, you know, how much to get involved in that. We're not secure software architects, but we are security people. What have you learned 
making that transition to uh, yourself about the kind of team that you hire when when you get directly involved when you do kind of be involved in touch points in the process how have you what have you learned doing the job you're doing right now as a CISO? Yeah, I mean, I came in here not as a software developer. I mean, I've uh, started my career as a systems administrator, so I'd written my share of you know shell scripts and Perl scripts. <laughs> you know, that's a very different thing than developing you know the type of application that Pindo is. Um, and you know, when I was doing that, I used to think I was really great at, at make files. So, um, you know, for those in the audience that are old Unix sysadmins, I've heard that in a while. Yeah. Yes, but yes, um, <laughs> you know, but this whole Git world, <laughs> um, I do not understand all the, you know, the, um, the mechanics. I mean, I get that conceptually, I understand it, but, um, you know, the, how people we actually use some of those tools, I personally don't understand. Um, or, you know, can't fully appreciate, right? Um, I don't have the muscle memory in my fingertips for it uh, versus I still have the muscle memory for VI, right? Uh, <laughs> um, Keep that but, escape uh, button handy, right? Escape. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. And HJKNL. <laughs> um, yes. But, uh, you know, I, I think learning learning what they do, learning how they work, and, you know, again, kind of from the same side, you know, our, our cloud operations team, learning how they work. Um, mm-hmm. You know, one thing that's really interesting is watching how um, that SRE skill set um, has is kind of evolved in the operations side of it. So our infrastructure is also code, right? That's how we, we build our infrastructure. It's all code-based. It goes through the same sort of um, change management and, and build processes that our actual code does. Um, which is great from a security perspective because it's not you're not counting on somebody there that's sort of manually clicking boxes to uh, to build this cloud environment. It's all code, so you can scan it. Um, you can you know make sure it's gone through change management. You have all the audit logs, tests, et cetera, um, to do that that same sort of build process. So, you know, as a security person, understanding those things um, has you know been important, uh, but also hiring people that. Uh, if they don't necessarily have those skill sets themselves, they want to learn those things. And I think that's actually one thing as security professionals is we always have to be learning. Um, and that, you know, those that, that want to go learn these new things, they absolutely can. Um, and that's a great, you know, one of the great things about being in a place like Pendo is that, yes, there's lots of opportunity to go learn, you know, these, these cutting edge new, new ways of doing things. Um, so that's actually one of the things I'm seeing that's different in the, the security operations team, for example, and security operations. I have three teams, by the way. I have a security operations, a product security team, and a compliance team. So security operations in the past, which you know, in the would have been very focused on more traditional, uh, you know, just looking at um, you know uh, a sim and kind of you know reacting to alerts and things like that. Um, a lot more so, we're uh, we're now actually developing our own code. Uh, we're we're actually building tools. Um, you know, we're automating things. Uh, you know, that's a, this, so it's a slightly different approach, and you know, more like that that uh, SRE in the ops world. So, um, yeah, I think that's where our skill sets and security are evolving in that exact same direction. And I saw actually just today, Microsoft released um, a uh, chat GPT tool that's um, for security, right? You know, so that's all coming as well. Um, so, you know, uh, this, the bottom line is all of this technology, uh, all the way we're working as security professionals is evolving. And that's one of the exciting things about being in a place, you know, that is trying to you know, keep up with all these, the new technology is that we have to, as security professionals, run after the same sort of th- sorts of things, which 
means that we're going to have job security. <laughs> we're going to know, um, you know, we're, we're actually you know, using all those technologies that um, the developers are using, that the operations people are using. So it makes us more effective as security people as well. So for right. a security person who might not be fully up on what SRE is, how would you describe cyber oh, yeah. engineer? Sorry, yeah, great point. Uh, so that, that term, I think, started with Google, uh, site reliability engineers. So again, really a heavy focus on, um, on automation. Um, again, automatically building environment, you know, building, building environments through code, um, not, you know, hands-on, right. Not racking and stacking servers and installing operating systems, but writing code that defines how that, you know, that, that tech stack is going to be built in the cloud. So, um, but also automating a lot of that so that, you know, Hey, if, for example, uh, you've got load issues and you need to scale the environment up. Like you, you automate that scale up process or, you know, hey, we need to scale it back down. So, you know, those things scale up and scale down automatically. That skill set from the SRE is is what kind of makes all that happen. Um, the same token, you know, um, you know, just automating all that HA type of, type of work. Right. You know, that that's that's the sort of stuff that, that SREs are responsible for. Um, yeah. Does that make sense? Mm hmm. Very good. Pretty much so. So when it comes to tools like ChatGPT, one of the things uh, through the various consulting engagements and, and clients that keeps getting asked is, should we block access to these things um, while you know while you're on the corporate network or on a corporate device? And um, I mean, Ch I think Chuck knows me well enough to know my you know my answer to that is no, because they're always going to find another way to get to it. And then you just won't see it when they do. But I'm curious uh, what you guys are doing for education around your user population with those types of tools. Is that part of your security awareness training? Is it something you're dealing with just with the product management developers or how are you tackling that currently? Yeah, I mean, I would actually say it's become part of our security, not necessarily part of our formal security awareness training uh, at the moment, um, but more so uh, just part of, you know, various outreach efforts that are going on. So, you know, we have a biweekly town hall um, and actually next one of those is tomorrow. And that is actually going to be one of the topics that's covered in the town hall. We've uh, we've covered it as a topic in some of our engineering town halls as well in the past, just to help people understand you know, look, there's a process that we have to go through to vet these tools from a security, privacy, and legal perspective. And we understand that people are going to be interested in using those tools and may have some, you know, safe use cases for them um, that don't involve sending proprietary information or customer data. Like, uh, you know, there's some gray area here, but, you know, but please just wait, you know, let us, let us finish our due diligence before you start using this for any, any sort of corporate purposes. But, you know, a lot of it is just reminding people that, look, we do have established processes for vetting and onboarding any sort of new tool. So it's not a, um, you know, not something different than we would be doing for anything else. It just happens to, you know, be very, um, you know, very newsworthy right now because everybody's talking about it. So so I'm going to dig a little further into that, um, just playing sure. devil's advocate. So when you have something that's that accessible and is basically a, a browser interaction and experience, how do you train? What kind of education are you doing to, to explain to people that is a tool? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, what we do is we try to remind people how these things could go wrong for the company. Um, hey, you think this is you know innocent. I'm just going to take this code um, that happens to be a proprietary code and put it in here. 
But in doing so, you might be creating a legal liability for the company because um, you know you've taken something that is proprietary information, given it to a unvetted um, vendor. We're not sure exactly, you know, from a legal perspective, if we own the code that it gives back to us um, after you've done, or you know, if you've asked it to write code for something, do we actually own that code? So it's reminding people those sorts of complications exist. Um, yeah, I mean, do people hear those things? Hopefully, but you know, we we also are realistic enough to know that not everybody is going to fully appreciate those things. But you know, we just do what we can in trying to you know continuously talk about that and ensure that people know that we are you know understand that there is an important uh, business value to be achieved with these tools, and that we are working on finding ways to use them in an appropriate fashion for the company. And in the meantime, just asking you know. Please slow down just a little bit while we work through this. Um, I have a something that I've learned that's just in a couple last couple of days to help people understand some of the at least some of the risks is uh, just ask Chat GPT to write your own bio. So write a bio for Mitchell Ashley. And you'll see that, yes, some of it's right. Some of it is, I was CISO at whatever. I'm like, I, know, I never worked at that company. <laughs> so you realize that, you know, there are some things that it's good at, but it also, while it all sounds truthful, it isn't necessarily accurate or truthful. Um, but some point. of it is. So it, it's still early to be, to have a high level of trust in, in some of the output. Right. I, I wrote a chat um I write a monthly post with, with packet pushers, uh, like an, an ask me anything column. And one of the questions was, um, they told me my book was too long. Can they just learn wireless security from chat GPT? <laughs> so, I, <laughs> so I said that, I don't know. So I went on to chat GPT and, and typed a few basic questions and the answers were, um, so then I scored them like with z one to five stars and there were, um, they were, it, it wasn't great. Like if it was, a lot of the information was old, didn't know how to parse together new information with the old information and, and, and what superseded what, and then it left out whole chunks of things sometimes. So yeah, I mean, even just the basic, you know, ask it the normal basic stuff, you'll start to see where some of the, the gaps are. Um, if I can, because this is, we're, we're going to be coming right up on RSA and Chuck, we talked to Britta and Casey recently um, and got the dish on some of the stuff happening. So I'm curious, cause I think you're, you're, you are going to make it there this year. That's my plan. Yeah. Is there anything specific you're looking forward to? Wow. You know, actually, um, I, you know, outside of the amazing technology and operations track, which uh, I'm lucky enough to be part of the program committee for, and I think we have a lot of great sessions. I mean, I think the main thing I'm looking for or excited about is just the opportunity to see people um, network in person again, see some some folks I haven't seen in a, a few years. Uh, last time I was at RSA was um, February of 2020. Um, so obviously right before the pandemic um, and not a lot of, um, you know, in-person contact with um, a lot of you know, colleagues from outside the local areas see my, you know, colleagues here in the Raleigh area a lot more frequently than that. But yeah, just looking forward to reconnecting with the, the larger community and seeing what uh, new things, cool new things are out there these days. What did you say, Mitch? 40,000 of our closest friends 
closest friends <laughs> yeah. you know, all together in one conference. Just, and <laughs> me being a huge introvert, like that's just <laughs> frightening, but also, okay, you know, it's kind of cool. You know, you do miss it to some degree as well. <laughs> aren't, aren't we all insecure? <laughs> yeah, I think yeah, most of us are introverts, I guess, right? <laughs> just We just pretend to be extroverts when we have to. Yeah. Well, that's the thing is we, we can be social. We just choose not to. <laughs> exactly. Let's <laughs> to our own devices will not be, but that's yes. right. <laughs> well, Chuck, yeah. it's been fascinating and we appreciate your time. Unfortunately, we're running out of time here. We could go on for another hour and a half. It's, it's been very cool that, that you've had this journey from kind of IT operations to sysadmin through uh, being a leader into a CISO role, into a CISO in a software company. And I think a lot a lot of people can learn from what you shared with us today. So um, as always, as always uh, JJ brings that perspective too of understanding you know, what we know today and what we're going to have to learn for tomorrow as a, as a security professional. And it's, it's interesting to hear both of you talk about it as well. So thank you for joining us, JJ. Thank you for being a fantastic partner in crime here um, on CISO Talk. And uh, it's been fun and we look forward to having you back. We need you on some more panels, Chuck. Happy to do it anytime. Thank you. Okay. You heard it. I just heard a commitment there. So we're <laughs> good. All right. JJ, any parting thoughts? No, just... Uh... Excited about this reboot and excited to get to see Chuck and all of our future guests. And um, thanks everybody for watching or listening. Fantastic. Well, check us out on techstrong.tv. That's where we show up uh, in video form. You can also uh, check us out at uh, CISOTalkPodcast.com, as well as on your favorite podcasting platforms. Lots of great uh, ways to listen and watch. So we thank you, everybody, for joining us today. And thanks to Chuck for being with us on behalf of JJ and myself. We'll see you on our next episode.